Turn together to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the third Gospel of the New Testament, the third book. And we are now looking at the last portion of chapter 11. We'll be looking specifically from verse 29 down through the end of the chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 11. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also! For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. 
So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would reach us by your word, that by your word and spirit you would not leave us unchanged, but, O oh Lord, that you would show us your glory and that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, the world is changing rapidly, isn't it? We look around us and we see there are fewer churches than there were 25 or 50 years ago. We look around us and we see that the churches that exist are less filled than 25 or 50 years ago. We look and we see that the influence that the church had in society and in the political arena is far less than it was 25 or 50 years ago. And as we look out on that, our temptation is to see the church as being a failure, as God abandoning us, as bad things happening. Because you see, we make a test of the people of God and of the effectiveness of God's work by those who are outside. And what we do is we think to ourselves, why do others reject Jesus? And we come up with all sorts of reasons and thinkings. But this morning, Luke and the Lord Jesus Christ draw our attention in a different way. They take our eyes off those who are outside. They take us away from our skepticism of those who reject the Lord and who do not follow Him as they ought outside. They look squarely at the church, at the people of God. They look at the obstacles that we place in our way to coming to Jesus. Religious obstacles, you might say, that stand between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I think is happening in the church today is that the Lord is bringing His refining fire. He is making it less socially acceptable to be a part of a church, less just something to be done, but more something that is a heartfelt attachment to the Lord. The people of God faced the same problems in Jesus' day. 
And so as we look at these obstacles, what will we learn? Obstacles like blindness, how we are blind to our need and to Jesus. Obstacles like hypocrisy, how we live one way when the reality is another. And obstacles like refusing to listen to the Lord Jesus, to do what he says. Blindness, hypocrisy, and a refusal to listen. Let's begin then by looking at blindness. It's interesting, the context for this passage. Verse 29 says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say. Now, Jesus is a great success at this point in the world's eyes. The crowds are getting bigger and bigger. More and more people want to hear from Jesus. He has greater and greater opportunities for ministry, we might say. But interestingly enough, Jesus proves once again that he did not take the courses in church development and growth. Because as the crowds are growing, his response is to look at this teeming crowd and to say, this generation is an evil generation. You keep asking for a sign, but you won't get one. That seems kind of harsh coming from Jesus until we remember the context here, that just a little bit ago, Jesus performed a miracle. He healed a man who was mute for a very long time, freed him from a demon. And the response of this great crowd that was following Jesus from place to place was, I bet he's in league with the devil. That's how he could do it. And the more moderated response was, well, that's nice. Can you do something else? Give us, we're kind of on the fence here, Jesus. Give us two or three more good signs, and then, then maybe we'll be able to assess what you teach. You see, Jesus has already given them a sign, and they keep wanting one over and over again. Because they're blind to their own need. They're only thinking about it in the context of who they want Jesus to be and what they want him to do. And Jesus gives them two stories to illustrate their blindness. He tells them first about the queen of the south who traveled great distances at great expense to hear Solomon. Now, we lose track of this because in our day and age, we can get on a plane and in about a day go all the way around the world. In those days, to travel the distances that she traveled, you would say goodbye to all of your friends and relatives because you very likely would never see them again. And it would take great time and effort and it would take great wealth just to make that journey. And she did all of this Because she knew she needed wisdom and she had to seek it. She traveled and spent all this expense to sit at the feet of Solomon and get wisdom. Now let's think about our own lives. Do you need wisdom? How far are you willing to travel to get the wisdom of God? When you think about whether or not to buy a home, Do you consult God's word? Do you pray? Do you ask for wisdom? Or do you rely simply on Zillow at various websites? When you're trying to pick a college or a university, 
Do you seek wisdom from the Word of God about what's important and what things should be involved in that decision? Or do you merely look at statistics that the school produces for employment? When you're thinking about marrying, do you take personality tests and ask the opinions of all of your friends about a potential spouse? Or do you seek the wisdom of the Word of God? You see, the wisdom of God is readily available to us. We don't need to travel for months on end to sit at Solomon's feet. We have 42 Bibles in our homes, 10 different versions. On every electronic device we could imagine, our Bibles speak to us. Our Bibles light up for us. And yet we are tempted not to seek the wisdom of God. We're blind to our own need. There's a second example that Jesus gives, and that's the story of Jonah. You know the story well. Jonah is told to go and to preach to Nineveh. So obviously what he does is as quickly as possible, he gets on the fastest ship he can find going in the opposite direction. And you know that the Lord will not be so easily dissuaded. He brings a storm and Jonah is thrown overboard. And by a miracle, Jonah is swallowed up by a giant fish. And three days and three nights, he is in the belly of this fish. And then he is spit out on the shores of Nineveh. And then an even greater miracle happens. He preaches the need for repentance and the coming judgment. And the wicked town of Nineveh repents. I think at least in part because... They had seen the Lord's mighty work in bringing Jonah there. Do we think about our own need for daily repentance? Or do we think that we pretty much have it together? After all, we're in church. We're not working the street corner. We're not selling drugs. We're not robbing people. But you see, our need for repentance is daily. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. Just as the Pharisees, who thought they had everything all together. So especially we who are here amongst the people of God need to understand our need for Jesus. Because if we are blind to Jesus, then we are in real trouble. Jesus gives us a wonderful illustration of this. He says, you know, no one lights a candle, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket or puts it in the cellar. Now, previously when he talked about light, he was talking about the people of God. But I think here he is talking about himself and the gospel that he brings. And there's an easy way to think about this. If you lived in a home in these days and ages, when it was dark, if you didn't have a lamp, you couldn't see anything. And you know how dangerous and foolish it is to walk around in the dark, right? Have you ever had the experience of you wake up in the middle of the night, And you don't want to turn the light on because you don't want to wake others up and you have to go someplace in the house. And then now I'm especially talking to any of you all who have pets. Or children. And you go and you make the walk and it's dark and you can't see anything and you just about kill yourself on a dog toy or a cat toy or a kid toy. Right? It's dangerous. It's almost foolish. 
That's what Jesus is saying. If you are blind to your own need and blind to the light of the world, then everything will be dark. And you see, he says this is damaging. (coughs) And he said the problem here is not the light. The problem here is you. Do you see that? He says if your eye is bad, you will all be in darkness. This is proof that as the gospel comes forward, that we need to be changed, that our eyes need to be opened, that we need to be made whole or one, because if we are not, we are dark to the light. If your eyes don't work, you're in darkness all the time. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is not about how he tweaks the message. It's not about the timing of the gospel. It's about hearts that need to be changed. Radically. To be brought from bad to good. From dark to light. Jesus. Open our eyes. Because you see, if Jesus does not open our eyes, we will remain in darkness. Because the truth to be told is, we love the darkness. We love to be able to get away with things. We love to be comfortable in the darkness. And it's only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that opens our eyes and allows us to see. We have been given a sign, Jesus says. A sign like the sign of Jonah. Some think that this refers to Jonah's preaching, but it says in verse 30 that Jonah himself is the sign. What was Jonah's sign? What does every Sunday school student know about the story of Jonah? He was in the big fish. How many days and nights? Three. That was the sign. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Jesus says you have a greater sign. And that sign is Jesus himself. That sign is Jesus who remained in the tomb for three days. And His resurrection power and glory is enough to show us that the gospel is true, that the gospel changes, and you should not ask for any other sign. Do not say to Jesus, if you heal my wife, I'll believe. If you bring me money, I'll believe. If you make my children toe the line, I'll believe. The only sign you will get and the only sign you need is the resurrection of the Son of God from death to life. It's the cure for blindness. There's a second problem that Jesus confronts. And it's a problem that is a temptation for us as well. And that is hypocrisy. Jesus is speaking and then a Pharisee comes up to him and invites him for dinner. I sort of have this sense, this imagination that the Pharisees kept the ancient equivalent of a, a shared Google calendar in which they made sure that someone was inviting Jesus to dinner or lunch about every day so that they could grill him over the coals. Apparently, it's this guy's turn today. Because out of the blue, he invites Jesus to dinner. And Jesus doesn't make him wait long before he offends his sensibilities. The man is horrified because Jesus doesn't wash before dinner. Now, I know there are some moms there thinking, Jesus... Really? I make my three-year-old wash his hands. That's not what we're talking about here. Young people, you cannot use Luke 11 as an excuse not to wash your hands before dinner. 
Because the washing that they are surprised Jesus doesn't do is not cleanliness. It is a ritual of godliness that makes you holier before God. It is something you're supposed to do. So just to give you a taste, in the Mishnah, which is kind of a commentary on a commentary on the Bible, one of the rabbis writes that if you wash your hands, and the first washing is below the wrist, and the second washing is above the wrist, you are clean. But if the first washing is above the wrist, and the second washing is above the wrist, then you are unclean. If you wash your right hand and then touch your left hand, you are unclean. But if you wash your right hand and touch your head, you are clean. Everybody got that? So you see, this is not just the mere ordinary. He wants Jesus to go through a holy rigmarole to show he's worthy. Because, see, the Pharisee thinks that what makes him worthy is going through this ritual. It starts with a biblical principle, that is, we are to be clean before the Lord, and it takes it to a level beyond anything we could imagine. And it becomes a cultural practice that then becomes a source of judgment. And if we are not careful, we can experience the same thing. What? You don't have an ESV Bible? Seriously. You're going to go to church in those pants? Really? You see, things that may have common grace wisdom in them, things that may even be better or worse by our means of our preference, we then drag in and say that God is fully behind our judgment. And what's at the core of that is what's on the outside is what's important. That's what's important to the Pharisees. They're focusing on the outward. You see, Jesus says to him, listen, there's an inside and an outside of the dish. If you wipe the outside of the dish, you wouldn't call it clean. Right, moms? Every mom or grandmom has had a kid that decides they want to eat in their room. And maybe it's ice cream in a bowl. Or maybe it's pizza on a plate. And they take it up out of the kitchen into their room and it gets a little bit messy. And then they set it aside and it sits there a day or two. And then they throw a sweater on top of it. And then a week later they throw a pair of jeans on top of it. And two or three weeks later they find it and they say, Oh, Mom, here, I forgot this was up in my room. But wait a minute, hold on. Let me wipe the outside. There you go. We can use it. How many of you would eat out of that? It's disgusting. It's dangerous. It's harmful. That's about how likely we are to live a life of godliness based on our outside. You wouldn't eat out of that plate, would you? You wouldn't eat out of that bowl, would you? Will you go a whole day without reading the scriptures? Will you go a week without prayer? Will you go a month without some act of Christian kindness and service to another? You see, this is when we are concerned more with our outer selves than our inner selves. Jesus says, give alms, that is, give of yourself from the inside, and then everything will be clean. If you give from the heart, if what comes out of you comes from a heart that loves the Lord and seeks after Him, 
Then you will honor Him. Then you will be following Him. That's what the Lord Jesus calls you to today. To examine your inner self. To think about who you are and where you are going. To not focus merely on the outward, the things that you are in charge of. You see, Jesus says, you're so worried about this, you tithe herbs. Now, I want you to think about this. Some of you may be familiar with the biblical principle of tithing. That is, a tenth of what we have goes to the Lord for His kingdom. The Pharisees took that exceedingly serious. They didn't just give a tenth of their money. You see, for us, the big debate is, do we tithe before or after taxes? For the Pharisees, it was, how do I tithe my money, my food, my clothing, and even my herbs? So imagine if you were concerned with these little pots. Some of you do this. You have these little pots with herbs on your windowsill in your kitchen so that you can have fresh basil or fresh oregano. Imagine if there were ten leaves springing out and you said, oh, i got to take one and bring it to church. Imagine if there were five little branches and you said, I've got to cut one of those branches in half and bring that with me to church. Imagine if someone said, why are you cutting the branch in half? And you said, well, God said we had to give 10%. Why would I give him more than 10%? You see, this is how we can approach life. As if the externals are important. As all of we have to do is check the box, hit the target, and everything will be good. This morning, young people, you need to hear me. Because you are at the most danger of falling into this. You are in church this morning. Your family brings you to church and you all, you don't need to admit it in public, are experts in doing things that you know your parents want you to do. To keep them off your back. It's just natural. It's what we were all like. It's what your pastor was like 30 years ago. But you see, if we only focus on the external, if we think that all that matters in being a follower of Jesus, in saying that we're a Christian, is to keep our parents off our back, is to do the things that we know will keep us out of trouble, that will make the elders and deacons think we're fine young men and women, then you could be lost. Because you see, that's not the substance of it. The Pharisees were better at the outside than you will ever be. They were on the all-star team. They were all pros, ten years running. They're lost. As lost as those people out in Nineveh were. You see, when we only are concerned with the external, we neglect the internal. And we forget what our relationship with Jesus is even about. And you see, this builds problem upon problem. Then Jesus says to the Pharisees, you Pharisees, you love to have the best seats at synagogue. You love the greetings in the marketplace. You want to be greeted by the most holy, right, reverend, doctor, rabbi, teacher. So that everyone knows how good you are. You want to come right into the front. Now, You have to understand the cultural difference here. Our front rows aren't exactly packed. You see, often in the modern church what happens is, if you, unless it's your habit to sit in the front row, as it is a sum, you you show up late and there's no other chairs and you have to kind of make that church walk of shame. 
up to the front. You see, in the ancient days, what would happen is you couldn't sit in the front row unless it was reserved. And you would come and they would bring you with pomp and circumstance. And everyone would look at you and they would know that you were holier than they were because you got to sit up front. That's what the Pharisees want. Now, we may not want to sit up front, but do we want other Christians to think we're smarter Christians than they are because we're reformed? Do we want other people to think that we're better people because we have Bibles in our house? And cross stitches with Bible verses. You see, if we focus on the exterior, there's danger. Danger at the door. There's a third problem here that Jesus looks at. A third obstacle that we place in our path of coming to Jesus. And that is refusing to listen. We refuse to listen, and what we wind up doing is silencing the word. We wind up being part of the problem rather than part of the solution. He says to the Pharisees, you are unmarked tombs, and people walk over you. Now, this is like, you don't understand this, this is like the biggest insult that Jesus could hurl at them. Because the Pharisees founded the whitewashed tomb society. Because, you see, have you ever been to a graveyard where there's a, a, a ground-level tombstone built into the ground, not raised up but on the dirt? And sometimes weeds and grass will overgrow it, and you don't even know there's a grave there? You have to understand that the Pharisees believed that if you walked over or touched a grave, you were ceremonially unclean for a week. And they didn't want that to happen to anyone. So what they did was they went out and cleared away where gravestones were and they actually had them painted white so that you could spot them half a mile away so no one would ever step on them. They were a part of the purity police. And what Jesus is saying is the way you live and the way you hinder the word is such that when people walk, you contaminate them. You're part of the problem, not part of the solution. We've seen this, haven't we? Perhaps it's happened to us. Perhaps it's happened, we've seen it in another. You speak to someone about the Bible and they'll say, oh, I'd never read the Bible. Why? Well, I knew someone that called themselves a Christian and they were just horrible to me. They were so arrogant and proud and and I couldn't stand them. If that's what the Bible teaches you, I don't ever want to read a Bible again in my life. You see, if we're not careful, we can be a part of the problem. We can prevent people from hearing the Word of God, from wanting to have the Word of God. And when Jesus says this, the lawyers pipe up. Now, some of you know I'm a repenting lawyer. Some of you all are repenting lawyers. Some of you all haven't repented enough as lawyers. But what Jesus is talking about here is not lawyers in the sense of Matlock. What really it would be better to call these people seminary professors or PhDs or theologians in the church, senior pastors. Because you see, their job was to interpret the Bible, the Word of God for people. And the way that they interpreted it was by coming up with more and more and more and more rules. Their motto was, if one rule is good, a hundred is a hundred times better. And that's what they did. And you see, they're insulted because they know that Jesus is criticizing them and their behavior. And Jesus says, 
You should be insulted. The target was you. You and your fathers have abused the prophets since the days of Abel, since the days of Noah, since the days of Elijah and Elisha, since the days of Isaiah and Hosea. And just because you build them big tombs, you think somehow you're serving the Word of God. You're not. You're keeping the Word of God buttoned up. You're keeping people from the Word. As a matter of fact, what you're really doing when you build these big tombs is your fathers killed them and you're saying they better stay dead. Let's mark it off. You refuse to listen to the Word of God. You pay lip service to it. And here's an irony. It's almost delicious. Look at verse 53. They say to Jesus, no, that's not us. We honor the prophets. Who is the prophet? It's Jesus. Look at verse 53. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. Actual Language, they had a terrible grudge. Everyone knows what a grudge is, right? A terrible grudge. And to provoke him to speak about many things. Lying in wait for him. They were plotting against him and lying in ambush to catch him in something he might say. The language is actually hunting so that they could catch the things coming out of his mouth. Does this sound like people who honor the prophets? Of course not. They don't want to hear. They don't want others to hear. They want to take away all knowledge. Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't go through the door of knowledge and you won't let anybody else go through it either. You think you know and you don't. And you would rather everyone was ignorant so that you looked good. Remember this the next time you're studying the scriptures and talking to someone. Is it more important that you're right with what you've just said? Or more important that you understand the scriptures better? It may be that someone can actually teach you something. That you might actually learn. That you might grow. But you see, if we're only concerned with the outward, we think that we have to put on a face that lets others know how important we are, how good we are, because somehow that's related to our standing with God. And the truth is, Jesus says, our standing before the Lord is a, is directly related to our humility, to our willingness to sit under the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, to be changed by the Word of God, and to see Jesus. Is there any hope? There's hope for blind eyes. There's hope for deaf ears. There's hope for hypocrites anonymous. That hope is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because do you see what Jesus says? He never gives up. Look at verse 49. You killed the prophets. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, tough with these people. Let them rot in hell. Well, your Bible doesn't say that, does it? No. Wisdom says, and remember who the wisdom of God is. It's Jesus. The wisdom of God 
said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. The word of God keeps coming to us. No matter what is on CNN, no matter what is going on in the Middle East, no matter what happens in the churches in Houston, the word of God will not be stopped ever. It keeps coming because God is the one who sends it. His word is personified in the person of Jesus. You cannot substitute anything for the word of God. You cannot add to the word of God. If you want hope this morning, beloved, you must hear Jesus. He speaks to you today. Hear him. Obey him. And be changed by him. The very word of God. Let's pray.